Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios. Kia ora, kia orana, talofalava, malo alele, bonjour. No mai, hari mai, whakatau mai rā. A special welcome to you all to this event, especially to members of the Tara crew and sponsors of Tara Expeditions Foundation. To members of Blake Expeditions, Fano, friends and crewmates of Sir Peter Blake, and to all watching online, welcome, welcome, welcome. My name's Mark Orams, and it's my privilege to be your Master of Ceremonies this evening. We are here to learn more about Sir Peter Blake's legacy and the global initiatives that have been undertaken to protect our oceans. In doing this, we honour Sir Peter's memory. We come together at a special time and in a special place. Those of you who have arrived in the daylight and have looked out the window here to your right will have seen a very special boat moored in a very special place with deep and important connections with Sir Peter Blake. I'm privileged to lead a school at the Auckland University of Technology where we decided to embark upon a Mataronga Māori voyage in 2015. In doing this, we have learned and embraced Māori culture and tikanga Māori. And as part of this voyage, I've been encouraged to look for tohu, or signs, important indications of the coming together of elements in our lives in poignant and serendipitous ways. This past week and today, we have many such tohu. Last weekend, Sir Peter Blake's old yacht Seamaster, now Tara, arrived back in Auckland for the first time since she left in the year 2000. And last weekend, when she arrived, was also the beginning of Matariki. For Māori, Matariki is an important time, traditionally a time for remembering those who've passed on and for celebrating new life. In addition, of course, we have the arrival of the America's Cup and Emirates Team New Zealand back into Auckland at lunchtime today. A team co-founded by Sir Peter Blake and Alan Sefton, who also co-founded Blake Expeditions and bought Seamaster as their expedition vessel. We have Ramon Trublet as director of Tara Expeditions here with us this evening, and his father, Bruno Trublet, who was a close friend of Sir Peter's. We have Nico Delabrosse, who as a schoolboy in France, had Sir Peter Blake as his hero, and subsequently worked hard to develop qualifications and an opportunity to contribute and live the legacy of Sir Peter Blake, and has spent the last five years on board Tara, honouring Sir Peter with his work. We also this week have Sir Peter Blake Leadership Week, and this Friday is Red Sox Day. The raranga, or weaving of our lives, of voyages of commitment to our ocean's planet, 
have other strands crossing and intertwined this evening. Thank you for being here and for, be, and for being a part of this. Na mihi nui kia koutou katoa. Before we get started with the presentations, a few housekeeping issues, please. In the unlikely event of an emergency, an alarm will sound and we will be directed out of the building by our ushers. Toilets are located through the back of the room, past the exhibition stands and on the right. And just a reminder, please ensure all your mobile phones are turned to silent. We invite you to take part during this event using social media with the handles hashtag AKL Conversations and hashtag Tara Returns. We strive to make Auckland Conversations as inclusive as possible and a full video of the event will be available with full captioning on the Auckland Conversations website post-event along with a full transcript. I'm lucky I got through that conversations conservation conundrum there, but it's probably okay to mix them up in a night like tonight. A few background comments about the Tara visit and the Sir Peter Blake Trust. After Sir Peter felt he'd achieved all he wanted to with his sailing career, he turned his attention to the environment. He'd always had a deep and passionate love for the environment, nature, and especially marine wildlife. This was his new challenge, and he was very excited about the possibilities to make a difference with Blake Expeditions. In 2000, he and his crew set off on the Seamaster from here for the Antarctic Peninsula to explore and observe evidence of climate change. They then traveled on to the Amazon basin and rainforest. His mission was to make people fall in love with the environment, especially young people. He wanted to educate people throughout the world through entertainment and by making documentaries with a difference, with a focus on water. He was only a year into this new challenge when he was killed in the Amazon defending his crew. Today, the Sir Peter Blake Trust delivers programs and experiences that continue Sir Peter Blake's legacy of leadership and environmental action. The programs of the Sir Peter Blake Trust give young New Zealanders with a passion for science, the environment, and conservation, life-changing opportunities. They also, importantly, include Sir Peter's spirit of adventure, exploration, and fun. Tara Expeditions Foundation also continues Sir Peter's legacy with a strong focus on science and ocean health. Since 2003, the schooner Tara has travelled 350,000 kilometres across the world's oceans. It has completed 11 expeditions to date to study and understand the impacts of climate and ecological changes on ocean health. The return of Tara to Auckland last Saturday for the first time since Sir Peter's death has been a week-long special programme of events, including a welcome flotilla, boat tours, a public outdoor photo and video exhibition, and this special Auckland Conversations event, event this evening. Tours of Tara are available until Sunday, and registrations are recommended. So to register, please visit the Sir Peter Blake Trust website SirPeterBlakeTrust.org. Tonight we will be hearing from Shelley Campbell, the Chief Executive of the Sir Peter Blake Trust, Roman Trublet, the Executive Director of Tara Expeditions Foundation, 
and Associate Professor Rochelle Constantine from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Auckland. You will have the opportunity to ask questions after the presentations. Auckland Conversations would not be possible without the ongoing backup of our wonderful supporters. So we'd like to thank our partner sponsor, Razine. Thanks also to our program supporters, Brookfield's Lawyers, Boffema School, Architectural Designers New Zealand, the New Zealand Institute of Architects, the New Zealand Planning Institute, the New Zealand Green Building Council, and MR Cagney. We are tonight in a wonderful city and a wonderful region, a city of two coasts, Tamaki Makoto, a city of four harbours, a city of estuaries, beaches and reefs, a city of islands, the city of sails, and now once again, the city of the America's Cup. And it's my pleasure now to introduce to you the mayor of the city of the America's Cup to speak to you and welcome you on behalf of Auckland Council, Mayor Goff. Mana, Ingareo, Ero Rangatirama, Tena Koto, Tena Koto, Tena Tato Katoa. Bonjour, bonsoir, et bienvenue, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, what a fantastic place to be this evening, uh, and fantastic to see the turnout of people here. I look to my left and I see the Tara. Back here after 17 years, and back in the last spot where Sir Peter Blake stepped off New Zealand's soil to go on his expedition. Uh, it's an amazing, amazingly emotional thing to see the Tara, then the Seamaster, back here. And what fantastic timing to be here at the time the America's Cup has arrived back to be New Zealand's Cup. I have to reflect on 22 years ago when my kids were, I think, 8, 10 and 12 and we joined the parade in Queen Street and watched Peter bring back that cup to New Zealand or bring, for the first time, that cup to New Zealand and how proud we felt of him and his team and what that achieved for our small country. So it's a great time to be in Auckland and it's a great time uh, to welcome Romain, your, your crew, and the Tara back to our city. Uh, can I acknowledge uh, Professor Mark Orams and thank him for his work in MCing tonight and his much greater work on behalf of the marine environment? Uh, can I acknowledge the friends who are here tonight of Peter Blake and the friends of the Sir Peter Blake Trust? Uh, Romain Trublet, uh, to you and your crew, you're really welcome in our city, uh, and it's great to have you here. And can I acknowledge Councillor Wayne Walker, sitting down here, who actually went to Paris in 2015 and was integral in the invitation to bring you here at this time. So I don't know what you knew in 2015, Wayne, but, but well done and congratulations for that. Um, yeah, let's hear a, a clap for Wayne Walker. Can I also acknowledge to Bob Harvey, uh, he's a good friend of Auckland, former long-standing mayor of Waitakere City, but to all of you, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I, I just don't think there could have been better timing than to have the Tara 
in our port to remind us of the contribution that Sir Peter Blake has made to our country and to the global marine environment. He had a remarkable career, tragically cut short, but where he won all of the blue water races that were worth winning, the Whitbread Round the World Race, the Jules Verne Trophy and the America's Cup twice. We're going to beat that uh, in honour of Peter. We're going to win it uh, as long as we, uh, we have it back in Auckland. That's, that's my hope and my expectation. Uh, so Peter was, of course, a superb sportsman, but he was a man also of remarkable courage, and he died defending his crew and that ship that is uh, outside this hall uh, docked at the wharf. He was a man, in my view, that was in the mould of Sir Edmund Hillary. And I say that in the sense that he did great things, but he showed remarkable modesty as he went about doing those things. And what we as Kiwis like to think is that our heroes are people who achieve great things, but also show the modesty about what they've done. We also like to, them to have a vision for a better world. And we know this about Peter Blake, that he had a commitment to making this world a better place. We reflect tonight on his commitment in protecting, sustaining and enhancing the world's marine environment. And he did that using Seamaster as his platform, visiting ecologically sensitive areas like the Antarctic and like the Amazon, and using that to highlight and to advocate for the protection and the sustaining of those areas. He was a leader with a firm determination, and he said, and I quote, to win, you have to believe that you can do it. And he had that belief, he had the vision, and he realised his dreams. I want to congratulate Tara and the people who support Tara and crew Tara for carrying on that mission statement, for focusing on the oceans, on science and on education. It's also fitting that the trust established in his name, the Sir Peter Blake Trust, works to deliver programs and experiences to young people focused on environmental action and focused on leadership. I had the privilege uh, just a few weeks ago to present the awards to the students on the Young Environmental Leaders Trust. And what a fantastic group of young New Zealanders they are for my generation. They give us huge confidence that our future and the future of our global environment is in good hands. So tonight, we celebrate the return of the Tara and we will be hearing distinguished speakers on local and global initiatives that we need to look after our oceans. Can I wish all of you an interesting and an enjoyable evening, and I hope this evening strengthens our commitment collectively to campaign for and to preserve the environment that, that, that sustains us, and in particular, our beautiful marine environment. Thank you very much for being here tonight. Thank you.
Thank you, Mayor Goff. And in particular, uh, we'd like to acknowledge and thank you for giving us your time and your thoughts in what's been a challenging and difficult time for your family today. So uh, our thoughts go with you uh, as you farewell your dear father over the coming days. I'd now like to introduce a special video that's going to be shared with you all. Blake Expeditions was Sir Peter's vision for an organisation to change the way people felt about our water planet. And some of the material that was recorded during Blake Expedition's short two years of work has been archived and resurrected by the Sir Peter Blake Trust. This video is appearing with the courtesy of and support of the original directors of Blake Expeditions, Pippa Lady Blake, Scott Chapman and Alan Sefton and we want to acknowledge their generosity in allowing us to view this very important footage. So we will now have the opportunity to hear from Sir Peter himself about the vision he had for engaging people in caring for our marine planet. this extraordinary vessel, Seamaster, built to go anywhere in the world where she can float. So anywhere where there's one and a half to two metres of water, this vessel can go there. Doesn't matter whether it's minus 40 degrees centigrade in the Arctic or the Antarctic, or at the top of the Amazon River, we can be there. have electronic charting. My family, my kids can call me on the telephone through the satellite. We can send emails, we can send still pictures. We have the latest high definition video equipment you could possibly imagine. We have on board this vessel enough food for approximately 15 people for nine months. We can motor for 10,000 miles. Of course you add the sails and the range becomes pretty much unlimited. So quite a unique vessel. We all live on a water planet, because that's what Earth is. So water is life, that's where life started. It started in the sea, right here. And where there's good water quality, generally life is good. So we are going on a series of expeditions, explorations, adventures, to look at the quality of life around the world as far as water is concerned. Life in on and around the sea, on oceans, rivers, streams. The way we plan to do this is through education, but it's education through entertainment. And about to put the two sides on it. I want to get to every classroom of every school in the world long term. We want you to fall in love with the environment. We want you to have fun with us, to experience the adventure with us, to want to come with us from place to place. We can do a lot. Why bother? too important not to, for all of us.
isn't that wonderful footage and wonderful to hear the words directly from Sir Peter? One of the greatest ways we can honour a great New Zealander is to continue on with the work that he started. And our next two speakers are going to give us wonderful examples of work that is doing just that. The first of our speakers, it's my pleasure to introduce to you, is Fire Shelley Campbell, who is currently the Chief Executive of the Sir Peter Blake Trust, and is responsible for leading and implementing its leadership development and environmental programs throughout New Zealand and beyond. Prior to taking up her role in 2010, Shelley was overseeing the health business cases for the Minister of Health's reforms in Auckland. She is a former Chief Executive of the Waikato Primary Health that provided health services to 315,000 people across the central North Island. Shelley is a board member of the Helberg Foundation, Taipo and Pacific Incorporated. In 2007, Shelley was awarded a Sir Peter Blake Leadership Award for New Zealand and was the first person of Māori descent to ever win that award. In 2015, she received the award of Honorary Captain from the Royal New Zealand Navy. Shelley will present to us on how the Sir Peter Blake Trust has taken hold of Peter's mission to create strong young New Zealanders who will make a difference. Please join me in welcoming the wonderful Shelley Campbell. Um, thank you, Marco, for your warm welcome. And it's really fitting that we are here for a discussion around ocean leadership while our friends from the Tarakura in town. And I'm incredibly heartened that so many people have turned up tonight to share that with us and joined in online as well. So Sir Peter was, for many of us, the ordinary New Zealand guy who taught us the difference that great leadership can make. Most Kiwis know about Peter's sailing achievements and prowess, but for a few minutes I just want to share a little bit about his environmental mission, how the Sir Peter Blake Trust is continuing his legacy here at home, and why it's so critical to involve and upskill our young people in this. So the Trust was established in 2004, and the purpose of our Trust is to inspire and mobilise the next generation of great Kiwi leaders, adventurers and environmentalists. So essentially we want to lift the leadership performance of young Kiwis through our programmes and experiences. We want proud Kiwis and future leaders capable of operating at the level that Peter did for our country. And I remember really well about seven years ago when Pippa and the board challenged our team to really step up and be more ambitious about Blakey's legacy. They wanted to reposition the organisation and really revamp environmental education for young people because actually that's what Pete really cared about. And at the time Pippa said, you know, I just want you to move us from beach cleanups to something Peter would be really proud of and something you think if he was still alive today um, that he would be doing. And I do remember thinking at the time, um, wow, that's pretty ambitious for a little charity with four staff and no money. But okay, we're going to give that a go. So... 
the first thing that we did was we decided to go back and talk to Peter's family and friends and fellow sailors. We spent time with the crew from Seamaster and we looked through thousands, literally thousands of unpublished logs, images and footage of Peter at sea on expeditions from Antarctica to Brazil. The archives gave us real clarity about what Peter really cared about, what he wanted to achieve and why. But we also realised that Peter was ahead of his time. From citizen science, his belief 17 years ago in climate change when most people doubted that it was actually real, and his desire to use high quality communications to get to as many people as he could through his environmental adventures. And while his passion to raise the world's awareness about the changes in our environment was clear, we also faced the challenge that many of our young Kiwi students that we worked with were very young or hadn't even been born when Peter was killed. How were we going to connect them and ensure that Blakey's legacy was relevant for them? We wanted to create for our country a solid pipeline of talented young environmental leaders, young people ready and able to become great scientists naval leaders, conservationists, communicators, policy makers, and the future leaders of our sustainable businesses and industries for this country. We decided to provide life-changing experiences to young people that would inspire them to want to deliver on Blakey's legacy, and that we would do that through adventure, education, and leadership development, just as he had. So over the next three years, we, we pursued three strategies to bed his legacy into New Zealand. The first strategy was to revamp the National Youth Enviro Leaders Forum for 15 to 17 year olds. We decided to take the program out of the classroom and around New Zealand. We wanted to showcase our beautiful country to our young people and to examine the critical environmental issues that we're all facing. From pest eradication and ecotourism to climate change and ocean health. We have kayaked in Nelson with orcas. We have ziplined 220 metres above the forest floor in the Mamakus. We have snorkelled in New Zealand's best marine reserves and we've sailed Steinlager down the coast of New Zealand. It's true, mock hijackings by the Navy during this forum are not uncommon as we help young people learn to adapt to the unknown and to work effectively as teams to build their confidence, their self-belief and their resilience. We teach the delegates how to negotiate with people who think differently than they do and to work with media to tell great stories of environmental action in order to mobilise their peers. Upon leaving this forum, these young people return to their schools and communities ready and equipped to lead their own environmental activities. Our second strategy was to scale what was working, our Blake Ambassadors. We worked to develop a network of partnerships with New Zealand's science and conservation experts to provide 18 to 24 year olds and New Zealand teachers with unique summer intern roles. In the last few years, our Blake Ambassadors have worked in the Catlins on penguin research and rescue, fisheries surveys in the Chatham Rise, studying humpback whales in the Southern Ocean with Niwa, and on wind turbines and restoration projects in Antarctica. 
Most recently, we had two Blake ambassadors on board Tara doing plankton and ocean sampling between Fiji and New Zealand. These young people return even more excited about environmental science as they move on to complete PhDs and lead international science and environmental research initiatives for New Zealand. I wanted to include this side, um, slide because I think this um, saying or this quote of Peter's is definitely the one that resonates most with young New Zealanders today. And for them, they intrinsically understand that their actions every day have a direct impact on the environment. And for that, it gives me great hope about our future. But we still had one strategy to implement, our most ambitious. We wanted to move the trust and young Kiwis into a modern age of ocean exploration. We wanted to attract our brightest and most talented future leaders into science and conservation. Strategy number three was Young Blake Expeditions. The reason it's ambitious, and my board would tell you this, is that we didn't actually own a boat. We didn't employ any staff with experience in planning or leading expeditions. And as a charity, we still didn't have any money. But just like Blakey, we didn't let that stop us. We forged partnerships with the Royal New Zealand Navy, our universities, Nzari, DOC, Niwa, and the Ministries for Education and Environment to give us access to the expertise and resources we needed to put together a deep-sea ocean-based programme. In 2012, we cut Young Blake Expeditions cut its teeth on a 1,000k voyage on board HMNZS Canterbury to the Kermadex, New Zealand's northernmost marine reserve with 30 young leaders and a full science crew on board. With health and safety at the forefront, our trustees were a little nervous. And this was not assisted by the news that we were taking the 30 voyages swimming with sharks off Royal Island. With the discovery of a new species of shark and a massive underwater volcanic eruption that was photographed by NASA, this voyage certainly delivered on our promise of adventure. Since then, we have undertaken two further expeditions to the subantarctic and Auckland Islands, where our young leaders have worked with scientists to undertake the survey work required for the proposed Blake Station, a new climate and ocean research station for New Zealand. So that gives you a snapshot of our environmental pipeline, um, and I just wanted to mention as well that in addition to our environmental programs, the Trust also runs about a thousand Leadership Week and Red Sox events in schools and communities across New Zealand, and our, sh our theme for leadership this year is Believe You Can, which of course comes from Peter and the essence of who he was and how he went about his business but also fitting with Team New Zealand returning uh, with the Cup this week as well, I think. So I just wanted to finish up with uh, several observations around ocean leadership um, and then share with you a video from our Youth Enviro Leaders Forum this year, which was actually in the beautiful Hauraki Gulf. The first observation is that despite the fact New Zealand is an island nation, we still have a bias towards terrestrial conservation often resolving issues such as plastic pollution, sustainable fishing and marine reserves can feel too hard. 
but given the increasing importance of our oceans to sustaining life and the planet, I would offer Blakey's own advice. It's too important not to. New technologies like NZGO's underwater virtual reality experience are helping us to get a better understanding and experience our marine environments in ways that were not previously possible. Secondly, the motivation for change around ocean leadership across the world and actually all cultures is without doubt an intergenerational view and those taking the greatest leadership do so accepting that it is their children and their grandchildren who will see the benefits of their actions today. The new models around eco-based management of our marine environments offer real promise. It is not enough to have great science and decision-making tools around the effective utilisation of our marine resources. We must also engage New Zealanders in discussions around what we value in our oceans, our priorities for use of these beautiful blue spaces, and the trade-offs that we can all live with as Kiwis. We now believe that the trust model to enhance not only young people's knowledge and skills about the marine issues, but also their leadership and confidence to negotiate, influence and mobilise their peers will be critical to New Zealand's ability to create change and manage multiple stakeholder interests as we move forward to resolve complex environmental challenges. Finally, my view is that we cannot engage young people early enough in these discussions and our efforts to do this through experiential learning will deliver a new generation of ocean leaders for New Zealand and perhaps the world. We must make space for them in our ocean debates currently in order to prepare them for these future leadership roles. So now I want to share with you uh, a quick video from our Youth Enviro Leaders Forum. We spent a week out on the Hauraki Gulf. We had 50 bright, young, talented New Zealanders and another five from across the Pacific who joined us. So please enjoy Youth Enviro Leaders Forum. Thank you. ELF brings together students from all over New Zealand as well as from the Southwest Pacific and the whole week is about leadership and action and experiential learning opportunities for these young people to become environmental champions. We've given the students a number of activities and events that will challenge them which allows them to explore their reactions to that and learn a little bit about themselves. It's been incredible in assessing the different ways that people can actually work together and what works, what doesn't work, what works in a different way. Welcome to your early morning activity this morning. It was just a once in a lifetime experience. Not every day you could go onto a Navy base, you could do the things they do, you can use their equipment.
One of the things we're doing here in Ngāti is about trying to create a sustainable urban village. This is the kai that was left over from the hui of 200 people in the weekend. We've got systems in place in our nursery with our compost, our garden, our worm farm and our pakashi system to reduce waste from landfill. Yelf and the Ministry for the Environment have a really close partnership. This year we've got a number of us coming for the week and um, presenting what we do to these students. It's really opened my eyes towards the procedures, legislation and everything like that. I've already seen some YELF people go back to their own communities and change what they might do in their school in terms of recycling. Others have been involved with us in terms of thinking about policy. My favourite event at YELF was the microplastics lab and learning about how microbeads and polyethylene really affects plankton. My favourite part of YELF has been meeting um, so many people who are like-minded. I think I've created lifelong friendships and we have the same realisations that we need something to be done within our environmental community. It's certainly like blown away all my expectations. It's been an incredible week. Each day has topped the last. We learned about lab work. We learned about policy. We went to field trips, places that I've never been before and learning that they existed and it's definitely been life-changing for me and it has impacted my life so much. Isn't that wonderful? And congratulations to the Sir Peter Blake Trust, to its supporters and all who've contributed to creating that organisation that is living Peter's legacy. Blakey would be proud. Another organisation that Sir Peter would be proud of is Tara Expeditions Foundation and the connections that run deep through not just the boat but the Trubay family who have had such a long-standing friendship with Sir Peter over so many years. So it's my privilege to introduce to you for the next presentation, the Executive Director of the Tara Foundation, Roman Trublay. With a double degree in biotechnology and business management, Roman is equally known for his sailing skills and his participation in the two America's Cups that were hosted here in Auckland in the year 2000 and 2003. From 2003 to 2006, he worked for Sir Polex and specialised in polar logistics in the Arctic, Antarctic and in Siberia. They were involved in the organisation of sporting, tourist and scientific expeditions, but also in the discovery of frozen mammoths. He has been coordinating Tara expeditions since 2004 and has become the executive director of that organisation. So Roman is going to give us some insights into how Tara Expeditions has transformed Sir Peter's drive and vision to get people caring about the environment through showing them how beautiful the world is and focusing on scientific research to help combat some of our planet's most pressing environmental issues. And as Peter would say, here's trouble. Roman Trublet.
Wow. It's a be back week. The cup, Tara, Simaster, and myself. My dad. Some, some part of my crew as well. It's a be back week. So what a week. Bravo to Team New Zealand. It's a, it's a wonderful time to be here. And uh, effectively, with Wayne Walker, two years ago, we planned that. We planned this week. You're good, huh? So, uh, yes, uh, thank you for your hospitality. Why Tara is, in, is, is, is sailing across the ocean since uh, now 14 years, since now, since Pippa uh, decided to lend the boat, uh, to sell the boat to, to my family, to my cousin Etienne Bourgois, who is a, a crazy guy in the head with a vision, and also Agnès Bay, uh, my aunt, my dad's sister who we started to, okay, let's take over and let's take the people into the adventure. Let's tell stories about the environment. And at the beginning, it was not much about science. It was just about telling stories. So why the ocean? If you look at the planet, this is our planet. And if you look at the, the bow uh, on, on the corner, this is just all, all the air we have on the planet. If you put all this air in a bowl, the air is such a small boat. But if you do the same with the ocean, all the water of the planet fits into this very, very small bowl. And when you know that uh, the life on the planet is coming from the ocean, when you know that the life that sustains us every day, our life support systems, is in the ocean, and when you realize the size of it, you say, okay, this is, this is the main compartment of life on the planet, where you find life. It's the biggest 80% somehow of the biosphere. And uh, there's no politician there, there's no voters, there's nobody to vote for rules. So there's a lot to do for the community, for our community as a human being, uh, mankind, to, to take care of this and to, to, to study it and to share it. So we did do that over the last, uh, uh, the last 14 years. Uh, we did 11 expeditions, some were small at the beginning, and, uh, but we did all in all, very three big ones. Three that is uh, in the wake of the great expeditions of the 19th century, when we were 18th century, when we were uh, discovering the planet, when we were going behind. It was Darwin's time. It was a challenger. It was looking for trade routes, cultures. And now we start. We're doing these kind of missions, but to study life and to share the ocean stories and the ocean life. So we did three main ones. The first one is a crazy one, the craziest maybe so far. And uh, in the room, we have two, a few, few of my crew who spent uh, 11 months on board the boat during this trip. Uh, and you can see the drift of Tara in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, what is this color, blue. And on, this was done a century after the Fram did it uh, in 1893. And we did cross the Arctic Ocean like that, the boat and the sea, what you see now, the, the boat and the world around the boat was drifting across the ocean 10 kilometers per day, without guessing. Sometimes it was a bit shaky, but... Uh, but and we did study the, the, the atmosphere, we did study the, the, the ocean below, there's 4,000 kilometers, 4,000 meters below. And we also studied that small varnish of sea ice, which is a meter now, that's been uh, reduced by 70% over the last 30 years. 
and how this small varnish of sea ice is uh, diminishing over the last, uh, how, where the heats come from. And the heats come from our places, from the south, actually, in the, Arctic, in the Arctic. And you can see that by the water coming in there, heats coming in, and by the, by the, the temperature in the atmosphere. So this middle, piece of ice in the middle is disappearing very fast. And coming back from this expedition that lasts 18 months, a year and a half, six months in the dark, six months in the day, and six months in the dark again, uh, minus 30 sometimes, minus 40 maximum, we say, okay, what could be the impact of this uh, onto the sea life, onto, and we, onto what is the basic of the food chain in the ocean, which is the plankton, the microscopic life that you can see on this video. How, okay, can, how can we understand this better, this world, this completely amazing world, this beautiful, beautiful uh, species and animals, creatures. We did study the planet, we did study this across the planet. We study the biology, viruses, bacteria, microalgaes, zooplankton that eats on it, which is the basis of the fish food, in fact. And we studied that in the environment. And we did that across the planet. It was four years in a row. Uh, as you can see here, everywhere, we will be fast on that. And we even sailed across the Arctic, around, around the Arctic Ocean to finish this study. And this was bring 40,000 samples. We do genomics on it, hard science. And when I speak in front of you, it's just not me. <laughs> we have 300 people who, since the 10 years, 14 years, are working to make this happen. So it's a lot of commitments. And these commitments led to a very, very state-of-the-art science. We did uh, nine papers in science journal uh, and in Nature, and 120 papers so far on this plankton story. Uh, sorry, and, uh, and we also did the cover of uh, science, which is amazing. I don't know how we did that, but we did it. And everywhere we were going on the planet, we were fishing plankton. Or we did the same work. Pretty boring, in fact, in the end. But uh, we were finding plastic as well. And uh, we decided to also do an expedition on the plastic in the Mediterranean Sea as a, as a laboratory. The Mediterranean is very well known, so we tried to tackle this issue. And, uh, and for every bit of, uh, of plankton size, you have the same plastic pieces in the ocean. So this is, this is not, a, not a fate. I mean, this is reversible. If we take action, if we do something, if we stop throwing plastic in the ocean, in 50 years' time from now, we will be a much better world. So this is just to, and this is really relates our daily life, the plastic we use every day in our kitchen, to the ocean and very far from the ocean. We found plastic in Arctic, in Antarctic, everywhere. So why we are here today is because we are on a project called Tara Pacific. So it's in Japanese because we were in Japan uh, two, three months ago. And we, we, we crisscrossed the, the, the Pacific Ocean uh, for two and a half years. We tried to understand how the reef, coral reef, behaves global change, not only climate change, but global change. So doing that, we, we stopped by. The, the, the range track is the first year we did. We're now in Auckland. And uh, we stopped by 18, so far, 18 different islands. We do always the same. We collect the same species. We collect the water around. We try to understand who is working with whom, who is doing what, how this whole ecosystem behaves. And by doing that, we were the same way. 
we can able to compare afterwards, crisscross uh, data, and understand new patterns and new adaptation strategies uh, for the future, and how to help in the in the future, how to help the reef to sustain the climate change if we can. So this is a long story, this is a long haul, two and a half years, and the science will be getting out for the next five, six, seven years. And, what, and the beauty of it is that we're going to be able to compare the reef biology with the offshore biology in the same way. We can get connectivity and have a bigger understanding of all this. And you know what, over the, this four years project on the, on the plankton, 85% of what we collected is unknown to man. So this is huge, this is very engaging, because there is so much to do, so much to discover, so much to tackle, so much scientists, we need young scientists to, to engage with the Black Trust and through many other NGOs across the world. Really, this is, uh, uh, I, mean, I think this is a great, great challenge to, to, to take. Uh, so doing across the ocean, we, we, we dive, the crew and the sailors, uh, diving on, on every reef, you got uh, Sam, the captain, he's also a diver and he's diving now, flying uh, his uh, motor, motor scooter across above the reef to collect the plankton, to like what's living on the reef, on top of it. And then we have other uh, divers down on below. One is, has a problem with his mask, yeah. But uh, you have other divers that collect pieces of plankton of, of coral reefs, pumping water around the reef to, to know who's living there. And all this is happening everywhere on the, on, on the ocean uh, over the last year. 2,500 dives so far, all safe. And we are going to next year again uh, to do the same across the, the, the Southeast Asia. Um, this is doing the reef. I would like to take you on a journey uh, for two minutes, three minute journey to, to really uh, love the, this animal with is the coral reef. Can you play the video, please? So what you see is the, it's really super macro stuff that has been, never been done before. And uh, and this guy Pete West from BioQuest is a, a crazy man, and uh, we are uh, working with him since a, a, year, a year already to to to, to achieve the, this kind of video. So. This is science, uh, there is education, education of kids, of course, and we talked about it a lot with, with Chalet. Uh, also grandkids, they are very important. This is Pete Ban Ki-moon. He had the chance to have him twice on board Tara over the last uh, three, four years. And uh, he was completely moved by what's happening on this boat, the science, the questioning, what, what we know, what we don't know, what we need to know in the future. We need facts. Today we need facts in this world where the U.S. are craziness to have their own facts. We need scientific facts today. Yeah, I my truth. He has, he has his truth, and this is very important. And uh, and we need to continue the work. And in the future, in the 2020, we already plan to do a next drift across the Arctic Ocean, and uh, with a laboratory, we're going to have to build. In, it's, it's just the beginning of the project, and as Peter said, the biggest. The, the hardest is to start, so we are now starting to build up this new project to drift across the North Pole and again study the biology over there and try to predict what's going to happen. And if we are here today, because of this man, I think if we, if we got this boat in the family, it's because of this man and he inspired us to do something. So if we are here, it's really a, a great legacy. It was hard to cope with this legacy. 
but I think we are on a good way and uh, all together. And if we are here, so here it's because of the council support. Thank you very much. The Black Trust, awesome support. And I hope it's the beginning of a long story to be between us. And also because of our great uh, partners of Tara since, uh, since many, many years. So yes, we can make our planet great again. And we can do it together. Thank you. Uh, bravo, uh, merci beaucoup to uh, Raman and to all the Tara team. As you can see, we've had two presentations which demonstrate for us that the spirit of Sir Peter Blake lives on in the work and the hearts of so many, and that is a wonderful, wonderful way to honour him. Our next presenter and final presentation for the evening is to bring us a little bit more down to home. And this is a person whose career and mine have intertwined on a number of occasions, and I'm delighted to welcome and introduce to you Associate Professor Rochelle Constantine. She is a conservation biologist whose research is primarily focused on cetaceans, and more recently, sharks and seabirds. She heads the Marine Mammal Ecology Group and works on a number of multidisciplinary collaborative projects anywhere between the tropics and Antarctica. She leads an international project on humpback whale connectivity in the Southern Ocean as part of the Southern Ocean Research Partnership within the International Whaling Commission, dedicated to non-lethal whale research. She is the director of the Joint Graduate School in Coastal and Marine Science between NIWA and the University of Auckland. Rochelle will bring the global picture home for us and will talk about the Hauraki Gulf, what's going on above and below the water, and how our actions can make the difference. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Rochelle Constantine. Kia ora, Marco. Um, Marco is one of my great inspirations, and I'm very grateful for many years of friendship with you that continue on. And thank you all for coming here tonight. It's, um, it's always very overwhelming, these events, because you realize that, and as a scientist, we know we always stand on the shoulders of giants. And there are many of you in this room who I know in many different ways, because as a scientist, our work uh, is not, it doesn't exist in isolation, you know, it takes a village. And my, my approach to my research has always been collaborative. Um, it's always been about getting the best people on board to, to, to try and find answers to problems, often to very wicked problems. And certainly, when it comes to marine conservation, there are many wicked problems. So, um, tonight I'm going to talk to you a little bit about Tikapu Moana, Te Moana Nui Atoi, or the Hauraki Gulf. It has many names, it's a big area, and it's actually a really, really important place. It's a, an important place to all of us who live here in Auckland because it's our big blue backyard. Um, many Aucklanders know the edges of it. You know, we dabble in it, we look in the rock pools. But it's actually an enormous area. Uh, for, from, for a marine scientist like myself, it's, it's about 4,000 square kilometers of just pure productivity. It's, it's a really homogenous environment. It's only about 50 meters deep. 
pretty much similar, Benthos, you know, a few islands dotted around, but it is constantly changing. There's this rich seam of cold water and warm water that comes through at different times. They come up and over the, the continental shelf and the wind mixes the water and it's always green. And, and in this case, green water is a good thing. <laughs> it's life. It's, that's where it all starts. It's the phytoplankton. And I'm often asked, you know, ah, oh, Rochelle, what's your favorite marine, you know, marine animal? Because I study whales and dolphins, everyone's like, oh, it'll be a whale. It's actually a coccolithophore. And coccolithophore, I'm not kidding you, I love coccolithophores. Now you need to go and look up what that is. <laughs> it's a very small um, unicellular phytoplankton, but it is a a work of nature that is spectacularly beautiful. And in New Zealand, we have them all around our coastline, massive blooms of them. They can be seen from space. Go look it up, coccolithophore. But in the Gulf, we have massive productivity. We have a rich um, uh, phytoplankton fauna, and of course, in turn, zooplankton, and so on and so on. Many people don't know that the Hauraki Gulf is New Zealand's only marine national park. It's a national park. It's like Tongariro National Park, like Whanganui National Park, like Abel Tasman. And yet most people are like, really? Really? <laughs> but this is it. This is our jewel. It has an act of, of law that protects it. And um, it is truly a, a, a magnificent place. It's a place of great life of all kinds. So I talk a bit about the phytoplankton, and now I'm talked about the zooplankton. And for me, these are the things that we see that inspire me. So in this picture here, we have, there's dolphins down in the bottom of the picture. There are um, shearwaters. Uh, there are some terns in there. Of course, they're the, the gannets that are diving in. And all of this life you can see on the surface is going after the same thing. They're going after fish. They're mostly small pilchards, soury, those kinds of things. And a big whale has come right through the middle of it all, a brooder's whale, and taken a giant gulp out of, out of the way of all of those other things that are picking off one fish at a time. You know, these 15-meter-long whales, brooders' whales, this uh, is, is a, a species that I've studied for some time here in the Gulf. But everything that you see on the surface is only a fragment of what's going on because underneath there, there are big schools of fish and they're feeding on the different zooplankton. And then there are sharks under there. And then there are larger fishes that are eating the smaller fishes and so on and so on. And this happens every day in the Gulf, all the time, constantly. It is such a place of great productivity. And it's a place that is you know, quite a fascinating environment because not only do we have the stuff we see on the surface and the life that lives in it, but it's also a place of many sounds. I'm involved in a research project with my colleague, we have a, a PhD student who's, who's about to finish, about the soundscape ecology of the Gulf. Now, I don't think you probably think much about what does the, what does the water sound like? Mostly, at best, we sit on top of it, often with our fishing rods or on our boats, and we sort of bob around. Occasionally, we get in there. Occasionally, we might you know, snorkel or dive. But it is so noisy. There is the noise of, of small um, uh, geological events, small earthquakes. You can hear those in our hydrophone arrays. There's also the, the dawn and dusk chorus. It's a massive amount of noise, and that's mostly the kinna, the urchins going <coughs> They go crazy. Dawn and dusk, for some reason, they all like rattle their spines, groove around, do their thing. We don't know why. At nighttime, you hear these really unusual sort of deep pop, 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 
kind of sounds. And those are the big eye fish venturing out of their caves at nighttime. And they go pop, pop, pop as a kind of, I'm here, oh yeah, I'm here, I'm here. I'm here. And they just, you know, pop, 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 pop and move around, staying in contact with each other as they venture at nighttime out of the, the, their, their very, you know, um, safe environment. You also have the deep croakings of gurnards and all the other fishes. You have the whistles and, and, and the um, echolocations of the dolphins, who also have this, the common dolphins in particular, have this very active period around dusk. For some reason, they all come alive. I think it's because the, the nighttime fishes are waking up and the daytime fishes are going to sleep, and the dolphins are making the most of that. And you have the low, very, very, very boring moans of the brooders' whales as well. But also over this, there is a lot of noise that's made by us. There's ship noise and boat noise, the high whine, the squeal of an outboard engine, and the noise of ships. Now, our big blue backyard is in our biggest city, Auckland. It's also our biggest port. And so we have a really big challenge there because that low-frequency sound goes for miles and miles. And we did some tagging of these brooders' whales and uh, suction cup tags that recorded every sound they heard. And in 62 hours of recording, there were very few minutes where we didn't have boat noise in the background. And that boat noise is exactly the same frequency that the whales use to communicate with each other. And that is of concern to us. But what was of more concern, of greater concern to us, was that in around the mid, early mid-2000s, we noticed that we were having a lot of these whales wash up on our shores. Now, brooders' whales in the Hauraki Gulf, it's about one of only three coastal populations of the species in the world. We don't know very much about them because they weren't heavily hunted. Unlike most whales, they don't go down to the polar regions. They just stay year-round in the Gulf. So we have these whales here year-round, 15-meter-long, big baleen whale, eaten all the time out in the Hauraki Gulf. And they're usually alone. They're usually just doing their thing. But what we found out is that they were being hit by ships as ships were coming and going. And this provided for us an immense challenge. Because what do you do when you've got shipping, which is the lifeblood of New Zealand, it's moving products into and out of. It's a massive commercial venture. Most of the shipping is global. You know, these are the big companies, Habak Lloyd, you know, Maersk, all the, the big names that we know that are global. And so we were faced with a really big problem because the brooders whale population, the sort of those that are pretty much resident in the Gulf year-round in the broader region, is about 60 whales. And we were having between two and three whales killed every year by ship strike alone, which is about the same rate as their natural mortality. So we were staring down a really big problem that we might lose these whales. So my, I guess I, I'm, I'm one of those people who don't like problems. I really like solutions. You know, problems annoy me and I like to find solutions to them. And so my first inclination was like, well, what are we going to do? Who needs to know? And we got a bunch of people together and we sat down and we said, right, what's going to happen here? And the industry, of course, is like, well, we can't slow down. You know, we've, we've got schedules to keep to, blah, blah, blah. You know, we, the, I'm sure this isn't a problem. I'm like, yeah, it's a problem. Here's some science. And they're like, ah. Oh. So then we went back to the table and they said, well, this is how much money it's going to cost us to slow down. I'm like, oh, really? Okay, well, it's a bit of a shame because that means you valued whales' lives. You know, and it was a, around about, I think, five to about $8 million a year. So each whale, you kill two whales a year, is worth about two and a half, give or take, to $4 million. That's the price of a brood as well. Whoa, steady on. 
It was one of those moments where we kind of all realized that our currencies were different. You know, what we were discussing and what needed to happen was different. And so what we did is we sat down, we hashed it out, we talked a lot, we agreed to be uncomfortable, we agreed to disagree, but we agreed that we had to keep going because we had one common thing, we didn't want dead whales. No one wanted to kill whales. And that was the thing around which the whole conversation went. In two and a half years, we solved the problem. The shipping industry developed a voluntary transit protocol themselves. And from two and a half years from the beginning of our conversations, they uh, uh, announced this, uh, the transit protocol for commercial shipping. It took them a, you know, sort of a year or so to get into it and to actually start slowing down. But now, for the last two and a half, almost three years, they've been sailing at about 10 knots through the Hauraki Gulf, completely voluntary, all off their own bat, and just doing the right thing. And the last dead whale we had was in September 2014. And that, I think, is the spirit of leadership that everything that we've had. Yeah. And the leadership came from us as a group. It didn't come from me. It didn't come from each of the owners of the shipping companies. It came from us as a group. And that collaborative approach is what solved the problem. And, you know, I could not be more proud of these guys because they just do it because it's the right thing to do. We face other challenges in the Horeki Gulf, the same as the global ones. You know, this, these wicked problems don't stay away from our Gulf. We are affected by climate change. We know that our weather events are getting bigger and more extreme. A couple of summers ago, pretty much all the whales and birds and everything just moved right out of the Horeki Gulf. It was too hot. It was just too warm for them. And they moved because it was too hot for the plankton. So the plankton moved and the whales moved. They follow their food. And we are, you know, facing these challenges. We're clearly facing challenges of plastic pollution. There's not one single one of you that can walk on any one of our beaches here and not find some plastic on it, which is really sad. We have some amazing organizations, the Sea Cleaners, uh, Sustainable Coastlines, a couple of examples, and there are hundreds and hundreds of volunteers who have removed over six million liters of mostly plastic rubbish off around our coastline in this region. Six million litres. It's ridiculous. And they mostly focus on the big stuff. This is a terrestrial problem. Plastic is a terrestrial problem. It's our problem. These are our choices. And every single one of us needs to show our own leadership in thinking about plastic and use and disposal and where it goes. Because these kinds of scenes of birds, there's, not, there's no wildlife at all in the ocean, from the smallest, smallest of animals to the very largest of animals that are not affected by plastic. And this is our personal challenge, I think, in the Gulf that we need to take on. We also need to think about in the Gulf the way we fish. And, you know, fishing is, is, you know, has become a real kind of, oh, the recreational, ah, oh, the commercial, ah. Oh. There are no sides in fishing. There are just fish. There are these, these fish uh, populations that we have in the Gulf that, that live only over a reef. That is their home. They know every part of that reef. And we bob around on top. We chuck our line over. We hook them out. You know, that might be a 40-year-old snapper who settled there quite young, knows all the where to get the best kinner, where to go, where its favourite kelp is, how to hide, hello to the spotty, you know, g'day to the little you know, leather jacket that goes by, we pull it out, we eat it, nice. In fact, sometimes we don't even eat all of it. We need to think about that. We need to think about what we're doing to our golf. We need to protect 
its sediments, the benthos, the life-rich benthos. It often just looks like sand and mud, but there is so much life. There are thousands of different species that live in the benthos. And so we need to think about what we're doing and how we interact with the Gulf. We've had some really fantastic initiatives been taken in identifying problems. This is the, the last of the uh, State of Our Gulf um, uh, reports. And they, they you know, came to that point where they recognised there was a problem. And they had some very clear guidelines of things that we need to do. This is our Gulf. This is our Gulf that we're talking about. And it is on all of us to think about how we can actually enact this and ensure that we, we move forward to a much better place uh, than we currently have. No, it's not a big disaster, but it's not, it's not all good. And there are many things that we can do. We also have uh, the sea change, Taitimu Taipari process, which is a, now a, a framework for moving forward and, and actually making difference. It's a bit stuck at the moment. You know, it's stuck in for polit political reasons, and we need to unstick that. I think us as Aucklanders need to just keep going because this is our golf. It's not Wellington's golf, it's our golf. And we need to think about what we want that to look like. And there are many ways we can achieve that. In summary, I mean, I am, I guess the, the Hauraki Gulf is every uh, message that Roman talked about that's global is in our backyard here. And I think that we can make change. All of the organisms that live there, from the largest whale to the smallest little cucolithophore, this is their place too. And I've had a lot of conversations recently with people about why don't we just change our way of thinking about it? It's not our golf. It's all of the organisms that live in the water. It's their golf. And if we think of our actions and what that does to them, then maybe, maybe we can just move forward and own it and take leadership over our own lives, but over looking after the golf for now and forward. Thank you. Kia ora and thank you, Rochelle, for such a powerful presentation and for reminding us of a number of things that are important. Firstly, that conversations are important, courageous conversations, conversations with people who see the world differently, but a commitment to continue to persevere and through those conversations to try and find a way forward that is better. That is part of what we are moving to now. I'd also like to reflect on two very powerful presentations from Roman with regard to Tara Expeditions Foundation and from Shelley Campbell with regard to Blake, Sir Peter Blake Trust and the work that they do and the difference that they are making. So as we move into our question session, I'd like to invite both Roman and Shelley back onto the stage to join Rochelle here. So here's what we're going to do, everybody, and I would hope that as these presentations have been made that your curiosity has been uh, piqued and that you may now have some questions that you would like to put to our panel members. We have some wonderful ushers who are working on each of the three blocks that you're sitting in, and then what we are going to do is invite you to raise your hand if you have a question you'd like to put and then we will direct, I will select the question to be put, and we will direct one of our ushers with the microphone to you, 
if you would like to introduce yourself, your name, if you have an affiliation with an organisation, you're welcome to let us know that as well. And then please let us know who your question is for and ask your question and then we will have our panel here respond. I know it takes a little bit of courage to put your hand up and even more perhaps to put a question, uh, but please have that courage and do so. This is the opportunity for us with these wonderful presenters to have questions that you're curious about answered uh, or particular points that are significant and important for you. Thank you very much. Appreciate your courage in the middle of the middle block here. If you wouldn't mind just keeping your hand up uh, and standing, thank you, and we'll have the microphone delivered to you presently. Thank you. Uh, hi, my name's Anita. I'm in my late 20s, and I just wanted to ask the question, who is your target audience? I guess more for the Tara um, people. When you have this information, who are you giving it to? Because I have an interest in Sir Peter Blake and what he has done for us because of my mother's introduction um, to for me in, in everything that Sir Peter Blake did. But I haven't really heard anything since. And I don't know whether that's just because I'm not in the right circles or what. And I think it's a shame because you have all this important information and I haven't heard it. So I'm just wondering who your target audiences are to maybe be more a part of that circle. Kia ora, Anita. So that question's for you, Roman. Uh, thank you for the question. Uh, actually, we have uh, three targets, four targets. The first one is, I mean, the, the basic one is science, because everything that is collected, every data that is taken, Every information we have on the ocean is open data, is open source, shared with any scientist across the world. They have access through uh, databases uh, freely. That's one. Uh, the second audience, uh, in, 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 I think in, uh, in size, is uh, the general audience through the media, uh, mainly French media, but whenever you, you publish these science papers, this has triggered uh, 1,000 papers, 1,000 articles in 100 countries in 10 days. So this global reach. And uh, we are uh, crafting uh, curriculums for schools. But we speak to the kids through the schools. And it's very hard to reach the kids directly. So we, take the, we choose to, to target the, the, skill good, the, good ski, the school kids, the school kids. Uh, with the teachers, and that's what we do uh, uh, and every day now. A lot, a lot, effectively, a lot is done in French so far. We need to be wider now. It's gone the way. And the last, and, and last uh, target is politicians. At the UN, we, we managed to take the scientists on the stage at the UN uh, many times. We managed to do side events, explaining stuff. Uh, and this is the fourth target we have. We tried to do all of the main targets, but of course it's, uh, it's a bit of spread out, but I think it's what we need, and we need time. I mean, we always say uh, we have no time, it's too late, but we have time to change, we have time to teach, we have time to engage our, the new generation for the next 25, 30 years. I think you need to take the time to, for that. Thank you, Roman. appreciate that. And uh, thank you for the question, Anita, and for, for leading us off 
with the question session. Uh, so I'd invite uh, somebody else to raise their hand if they have a question, please. Again, in the uh, middle block towards the front here, please, for our usher. If you wouldn't mind just standing again, thank you. Kia ora, my name's Emily, and I love the oceans. Thank you for your talks, all of you. I have a question for Roman about your expedition through Japan. What was it that you were looking at? Was it, for example, the impacts of the nuclear um, power plant fallout? And did you, if it was, did you see anything? And can you tell us about it, please? Thank you, Emily, for the question. Just a quick little translation going on here. No, the sound is not very nice for her. Okay. Know. And, I'm, and I'm French. <laughs> of course. Uh, in Japan, we, we in Japan we it was a we did a, a survey of the coral reefs uh, in August, in Shishijima, south of Japan, and all the, the the archipelagos of islands from the Ryukyus, you know, the one from the southern tip of uh, the the main islands and uh, Okinawa. This was a study we did from Tokyo to, to Okinawa. Uh, but we spent a lot of time, I mean, we spent more than a month, uh, all the crew, and it was a crazy venture to uh, call in eight harbors in Japan to talk to them about the ocean without confrontation talking about the fisheries, but we tried to talk to them about what the ocean is doing for them every day. Ocean, atmosphere, oxygen they breathe, uh, the fish they catch is coming from the Hithi Ocean, and maybe in the future, if we are not careful, this, will maybe, this life support system may not sustain. So we tried to tackle that. We didn't, we haven't gone to the, 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 the nuclear issues area in Fukushima this time. We're going to go there next year. And uh, effectively, this will be the time to talk about it. And, uh, but in Japan, is such a weird place. Weird people. They're not like us. That's, 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 they don't think like us. They, it was a crazy, I think it was a crazy time for us all on the boat. Uh, but it was very interesting, actually. And uh, we need to, it's a hard, it's very different. We are very different. And before putting them the head in, Below the water, that you are doing, you are a bad fisherman. You fish too much. You, 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 you ruled the ruined the ocean with your nuclear uh, leaks. Uh, they had a lot of effort to do to understand them, how they think, how they they can change. Thank you, Raman. Excuse me, just uh, shading the lights here and and sort of looking in the distance. A middle block all the way down the back row there, please, Usha. So just be a a few seconds. And same process, please, if you wouldn't mind uh, just taking the microphone and introducing yourself uh, and who your question is for, and then your question, please. Yes, my name is David. Um, I'm an Australian, I feel friendly here, um, and I'm at the end of a 10-year yacht uh, cruise around the world. Um, my question is this. There's an enormous resource out there called Yachtsman, and in the city of Sales, all the more so. I've met thousands of yachtsmen. Can I ask you, how do you utilize that resource? And what suggestions do you, do, do you give to do so? Thank you. Uh, thank you for asking the question. We, since uh, four years now, we, with a scientist involved in Tara, called Bond de Vargas, and also with an uh, association in New Zealand as well, 
we developed a, a project called Plankton Planet. And if you, if you connect to this website, you can, if you want to go on the loop, uh, there's a loop here, and you, Kiwiland, uh, Fijiland, Vanuatu, and back. Uh, if you want to do this loop, you could do a plankton collection every day, every day or so. But the problem is that so far, you have to go down to two knots. And when you're a, a, a cruiser, ah, ah, you don't want to go to two knots. You don't want to get the sail down. You don't, you don't want to bing bang in the, in the ocean like that. So to collect plankton, you don't even see. So we are working now to develop, To we spend the week here to work on that. There is 15 people of us coming from all over the place uh, uh, to find ways to be able to do that in five knots. And I think we will be more, much more successful in the future to go to avoid stopping down the, the, the boat. Yeah. So it's the future. And we, of course, when you talk about the ocean and you see, we, saw, we barely know nothing about what's living in the ocean. And this is not only the survey boat across the planet who can do the job. You're right, the resource we have on the yachtsman, the cruisers across the planet uh, is huge, and uh, we are definitely uh, intending to, to, to tap into it and to engage people in that. Thank you for the question. I'll add to that too. Thank you, David. Uh, you may already be a, a part of or aware of an organisation called Sailors for the Sea, and you're quite right. There are, are thousands of sailors who are exploring, sailing, and caring about our marine planet as we speak. Uh, and I'd also add you're very welcome here, David, as an Australian. Of course, the skipper of Emirates Team New Zealand is an Australian, so I hope you celebrate along with us tomorrow in the parade. Uh, so welcome in the best Anzac spirit. Uh, another question, please. Uh, again, in the middle block. Come on, outside blocks. We're not... Uh, oh, middle block uh, just in the front here, and I'll come to you, thank you very much, in the right block after that. So uh, about the fifth row black middle block. Back, middle block, please. Thank you. Uh, my name is also David, um, and I'm an Aucklander, and this is a related question, uh, particularly for you, Rochelle, if I may. Um, I'm an Aucklander. I have a small boat, and with my family, we love to explore the Hauraki Gulf. Uh, if there was one thing you would like Aucklanders to do differently? One behavior change you think could make a considerable difference to our big blue black yard? What would you ask us all to do? Assuming we do, we like to behave responsibly as best we can and we like to do the obvious, what's the thing, the big change we need to make? I think for, for all Aucklanders is thinking about what comes off the land part and goes into the sea. We have um, issues with you know, stormwater, with sewage runoff, and of course with just rubbish going off, you know, off our land and into the sea. I think for those Aucklanders on the water, and there are very many, you know, we're usually not too far from the land, we quite like the land, but for all the Aucklanders that are on the water, I think have a seriously good think about your fishing practices. Because they, we need to think about how we, um, the gear we use, how we use it. We need to think about 
Is there a risk for a bycatch of a seabird, for example? We have very high bycatch of seabirds and, and little hooks, just, you know, the little hook you throw off the side of your boat. Just through lack of awareness, there's some great education campaigns around how to make your, your fishing seabird safe. And also what you're catching, how many fish are you catching, um, and also how much you're taking from around the, the coastlines as well. You know, our mussels, our cockles, our, you know, all of those things as well. So on the land, thinking about what comes off our land into the water, and then when you're on the water, thinking about your fishing practices. Thank you, Rochelle, and thank you, David, for the question. I'll just add my thought to that, if I, I might as well. Um, my, my view on it is that we need to go through a fundamental attitude change, that fishing is not a right, it's a privilege. Uh, and what that means is if we adopt that particular attitude, that means we don't fish to the limits uh, that are given to us. Uh, we fish for, as a privilege, only what we need, and we're very careful in our decision-making about where we go, how we do it, and what we do. And leadership first starts with leadership of self. Uh, and if we lead ourselves, then we have the right or the ability to perhaps lead others. So uh, thanks for the question and the opportunity to share my thoughts. Now, I promised I would come over to the right group here, so apologies that I missed that before. There was a gentleman uh, middle of the right group who was waving. Uh, so about third from the aisle, please. Thank you for your patience. My name is uh, Reg Lawson. I'm a fourth-generation New Zealander on all sides. Um, I've dived from the age of 13, and I'm now 73. Um, I've seen a lot of changes in all that time, most of them for the worst. Um, what I, I attended a, an Oceans 40 years ago <coughs> when a, Dr. Sylvia Earle warned of the pollution of the trenches around the world. And I think it was last year, Neva said, oh, there's pollution in the trenches of the ocean. And to quote a plumber, shit doesn't run uphill. Um, I'm just wondering how the heck we can actually um, deal with this problem because that's, I think, where the ocean is getting poisoned. And as you know, if the oceans die, we die. It's as simple as that. I was just wondering if you knew of any way that they're improving this situation apart from just the shallow waters. Thank you. Thank you, Reg. Uh, any one of the panel members like to, to take that question? Yeah, it's a, a very good point. I, th I do think we must also remember we have made progress. You know, if you think oh, probably about... Th oh. 30, 40 years ago, everything got dumped into the ocean. You know, absolutely everything. And, and, you know, the London Dumping Convention, as it was at the time, you know, actually got rid of a lot of the real egregious crimes against the planet where the, the ocean was just considered a big tip. And so, you know, and same with um, runoff from factories into, to, um, you know, rivers and estuarine spaces. 
I think one of the great challenges for us, and this is where technology and engineering and ingenuity is really important, and, and allowing people to think of completely wacky ideas and not dismissing them out of hand, we have to think about all crazy ideas, good ideas, random ideas, and really give them an airing to solve these problems. And there's recently that, that Dutch chi uh, boy, who um, teenager, who sort of thought of a big... Um, machine that just, so, well it's not even a machine really, it's just a passive thing that's floating around out in the ocean and picking up rubbish and it's working, you know sure it's not perfect but it's actually working, we know where the major rubbish gyres are and I think there is now we're getting to the point where why don't we work out how to just go out there and pick up a whole bunch of that rubbish? It's not hard to find. Sure, there are some things like in the deep trenches that we won't be able to get to to tidy up, but I do think if we don't add to it, then it, it won't get any worse. You know, and, and they're, they're, they're really wicked problems, but I do think that one thing about humans are we are um, infinitely curious and we're always thinking of ingenious new solutions to problems. And sometimes it's the most obvious, simple thing. So I think we need that space to, to voice those possibilities. And we need to share that because, you know, been in Japan uh, three weeks, three months ago, and I've been in the front of a crowd like you, and I asked the question to Japanese, do I have, how, much, how long do you think the plastic bottles disappear in the ocean by itself? How long? I raised the hand. A week? Another guy, another lady at the back. Two weeks? And at the, in the end, okay, no, let's go for it. Three months? Yeah, a century. They were like uh, shocked. 1,000 people in front of me. So you realize such a country like Japan, educated, sophisticated, uh, rich, is not able to teach his population this type of basic ideas, basic notions. Here we are, here we stand, and now in, and in Japan there is maybe five, six NGOs only. There's no, we have to leverage that, we need to work on that as well. So it's not only, it's everywhere on the planet, so the problem is global. But it's education is, for me, education is the key of everything. Um, that with your experience that you see that number one issue is pollution because actually from our experience with young people it's the thing that concerns them most as well. Um, but what gives me heart um, with young people is um, we did a microbeads plastic lab at Auckland Uni with Yelf and then we got all these calls from parents when they came home because the kids had raided the um, medicine cabinets at home and chucked out all their parents' kind of makeup and creams that were contributing to that pollution. Um, so, our, you know, we hear a lot of stories about our young people, negative stories in the paper, but actually they really care about these environment, uh, environmental issues. They want to make a difference and they're really ready to act. So we need to create the space for them to do that and engage them in those conversations. The other thing that I watch that's really different with them is um, that those of us, um, you know, of my generation, you know, we might look at potentially one or two situations or solutions. Um, our kids in this generation, you know, they're very quick to look at technology and, you know, 25 different solutions. I remember um, one expedition when we were on and we talked about problems with recreational fishing and capturing um, how many fish are being taken. And that night one of the students created an app to be able to monitor recreational fish take. 
So now our kids are smart and they're really, really motivated. Thank you um, to the three panellists and thank you to Reg for the question. All right, we'll share it over to the left block here now. Uh, and I'm sorry, we're not going to be able to take all questions. We've only got a couple of more minutes, but we do want to uh, have a representative from Team Left Block uh, to go ahead. Thank you. Uh, bonsoir, Romain. I'm Rosaria. I'm the National French Advisor, and we love French here in New Zealand. Um, we have about 60,000 students learning French, um, 550 teachers across the country. Could we have some resources for our French curriculum from you, please? It's open source. Yes, of course, open source, Merci my dear. Beaucoup. I'll come and talk to you afterwards. Okay? <laughs> no, but to every parent, you t I, I did it myself with my daughter. She was six years old. You take her once, once, one hour on the beach clean, beach cleaning, once in your lifetime, one hour, and she will bother you for the rest of your life when she, she will shout at people, hey, look at this guy over there. He's, he's, he's strong, this one, not this one. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> Thank you for the question and, and Roman for the answer, reminding us, as Shelley did, of the power of, of our young people. Um, my apologies that I am calling uh, a, an end to the question session at the moment, but uh, I'm sure that there are other opportunities to engage in conversations with one another and with our panellists as we draw things to a close. What I'd like to do in, uh, before we hand over to our person to deliver a vote of thanks is to acknowledge all of the people in the room here. I recognise that one of the reasons that you are here is because you genuinely care about the sea and about our environment. And I know that many of you here have dedicated a huge amount of your time, effort and your money to making a difference for our marine planet. And I want to acknowledge and thank you for all the organisations, all the work and all of the commitment that you've shown. Uh, you are part of the answer and thank you for your work and commitment to that. I started this evening... Oh, okay, Ramon, good, very good. Give yourself a clap, man, yeah, nice. I started this evening by talking to you about tohu, or about signs, and I also talked about raranga, or weaving. Weaving is very symbolic for Māori because it weaves strands together, and what I hope you've recognised tonight, and over the course of this week and the remainder of it, is that we have some very significant strands that are weaving together, and adding strength, and adding value, and adding influence to who we are as people who genuinely care for this planet that we share. The other thing that's significant as a uniting factor, of course, is that the word rangatira in Māori is the word for a leader. And as the essence of that raranga, as the beginning of rangatira, is the weaving. It is the bringing of people together, and a rangatira does that as a servant and a person who is able to bring people together to unite and weave those strands to create something strong, to create something that is special, and to create something that is able to carry knowledge and change into the future. So I want to draw a close to our thinking and conversations tonight 
and with the hope that they are catalytic and we're able to continue on with those conversations and the work that we all do in our different spheres of influence and the rangatiratanga that we express through our actions and our connections. So thank you for coming this evening and it's been my privilege to be your Master of Ceremonies. I would now like to introduce to you the person who's going to close and express thanks for our speakers uh, this evening. Uh, Jacob Anderson is the manager of the environmental programs at the Sir Peter Blake Trust. These include, as Shelley has introduced us to earlier, the Young Blake Expeditions, those fantastic opportunities for young New Zealanders to explore and adventure to remote parts of our archipelago in this corner of the southwestern Pacific and Southern Ocean. The Blake Ambassador Program, the Environmental Educator and Science Outreach Initiatives. Jacob obtained his Bachelor of Science from, the Mass from Massey University, has a Master of Science in Geology from the University of Otago, and he held there an Ains po uh, Postgraduate Research Award, and he's currently undertaking his PhD at the University of Otago. His research focuses on past Antarctic climate and ice sheet behaviour. He has participated in four scientific expeditions to Antarctica and has been on two expeditions to the Auckland Islands as part of the Department of Conservation's Hoiho Yellow-Eyed Penguin Monitoring Program and on the 2016 Young Blake Expedition. Please join me in welcoming Jacob Anderson. Kia ora and thank you, Marco. Um, as Mark, Marco had mentioned, my name is Jake Anderson and I manage the environmental programs at the Sir Peter Blake Trust. And I've worked alongside an amazing team to deliver this very special and timely return and Tara exhibition this week. And it has just been the most extraordinary week for the Trust team here and the Tara crew to bring Sir Peter Blake's legacy, his environmental legacy, back to life. And I'd like to thank Thank you again, Marco, for facilitating this, this wonderful evening. And I'd also like to especially thank the speakers tonight, and I've got a few key messages that, I, that I've taken from, uh, from what they've said today. Shelley mentioned the trust pipelines and the need for us to engage with our young people in environmental issues, and we need to equip and prepare them with the skills and knowledge to be future leaders in that space. And people often ask us how's the best way to support the Trust and continue Sir Peter Blake's legacy. We have a support crew of fantastic people who contribute small amounts of, of their choice of money uh, or other ways to support us monthly. So if you're interested in supporting us, there, there is a, a desk at the back for, for you to sign up and, and have a chat with some of our, our team and we would love to have you on board. Remain, uh, really, it's been the most amazing week. To, to get to know you and, and the, the, the team at Tara. And I, I feel like for us, um, after 16 years to have Tara back in New Zealand, it, it is remarkable and the Trust is delighted to be starting this amazing partnership with you and Tara Expeditions Foundation. And, and through the research and outreach on board Tara and the programs that the Trust delivers, we, we really look forward to, to working together in the future. And I think that the 
the time lapse and, and that coral imagery was just the most compelling thing and, and seeing some of those visual images was, was truly spectacular tonight so we're very special as well to see that. Rochelle has a very simple message and it's, um, it's amazing what getting together the, the right group of, of, of minds into a room and having an honest conversation about some of those big challenges is. And we know what we need to do and we just need to keep moving forward and I think that's a really important message. We already know what some of these big challenges are, we've just got to pull our sleeves up like Peter would and just get on with it. I'd also like to extend a very special thanks to, to the Mayor, Phil Goff, for opening the conversations this evening and thank you all for attending and also our viewers watching the live stream online. I'd like to extend a, a very special welcome, uh, a very special thank you to Councillor Walker, his work and support of this, this project which is, has been two years in the making from your visit in Paris, Wayne. It's, um, it's been instrumental to the success of this week, so thank you very much, Wayne. I'd also like to extend my, my thanks to, to the, uh, the Seamaster crew here this evening. It's, it's been wonderful to have you uh, back involved with, with Tara Seamaster this week. And thanks again to the Auckland Conversations Programme sponsors and supporters and the supporters of the, the Tara exhibition, in, in particular the New Zealand Maritime Museum, the New Zealand France Friendship Fund, the Hauraki Golf Forum, the Kermadex, Omnigraphic, Flags, F Phantom Bill Stickers, Alliance Francaise, Sawprint, QMS, 11PR, TBWA, The Maritime Room, New Zealand Marine, Orem's Marine, Network Visu Visuals and Cosio Industries. And the next Auckland Conversations event will discuss a living wage for Aucklanders and is taking place on Tuesday the 25th of July in Aotea Centre. And if you visit the Conversations website you can find more information about that, the next event. And also I would encourage for those of you who haven't had the opportunity yet this week to go out and have a tour of Tara. It is the most remarkable vessel. Have a look at the, the videos and, and uh, the, the photos and, and explore the containers. Bring your family along and, and we encourage you to, to go and check that out and those opportunities will be open until Sunday. So that concludes the evening and uh, I really want to thank you all for, for being here tonight and I want to thank the speakers and Marco again for this wonderful evening. Cheers. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios.